iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, this is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, no substitutions for England for the first time in 25 years, but did it cost them a win over Poland? Could the World Cup be held every two years? Should the 3pm blackout open up for Cristiano Ronaldo? And does going back ever work? This is the game. I'm Hugh Wisencroft and welcome back to the game. Helping me today through all the big stories as we build up to the return of the Premier League and a little look back at the international window. Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd. How are you all? I'm sure I'm not quite as tired as you are, Hugh. You've had a long journey. Yes, mate. To be honest, I've literally, I've just come back from the airport, landed from Warsaw. It was a quick in and out visit. I was there for about 40 hours to watch England's draw with Poland yesterday, which I've got to say... It was a weird one. It was a fantastic atmosphere in Warsaw and the fans, all of them, I mean, genuinely all of them stayed right until the end of the game. So they got the goal that they deserved through their patience because I've got to say, I wanted to start by just giving England and Gareth Southgate as many compliments as I possibly could because he got a bit of criticism in the last podcast. Honestly, the, the, the play of England, in particular in that second half, I don't remember a game honestly, against a team as good as Poland. I know a lot of people think they're not that good, but as good as Poland. Totally dominant. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was just like Poland could not get the ball. We're talking like one or two passes and England would have it back. And then they would just monopolize possession. And it was like, I was like, oh my God, they have actually built from the Euros. They've, they've got a bit of swagger now, which I think that's what you need if you're going to go and win a World Cup. You need the confidence that you can just outplay anybody. Poland aren't anybody. They're not Brazil. They're not Argentina. They're not France. But it almost felt like the players had that extreme level of confidence and maybe even arrogance. I was looking at, at Gareth Southgate down there and he was just, it was almost, you can see it as a negative, but he seemed so relaxed, so calm. Paolo Sousa, the Poland boss, was just going ballistic. It was frenetic, arms in the air, screaming constantly. And our manager had his hands in his pockets and he looked totally chilled and totally relaxed about the fact that his side were going to get a result. And I just thought it was a bit like when James Bond walks into the casino for the first time. You know, Gareth <laughs> was, ne- was neither shaken nor stirred. You know, he was ultimately cool in that situation. Now, that's why I think it is going to be a bit hard for us to talk about the substitutions and, and his in-game decisions, because I thought England were superb for so long. The level of difference between them and Poland was so extreme that it is so hard to criticise them for that goal right at the end especially the players. I just feel, I feel like it's harsh because for me, that was one of the best England performances of recent times and they didn't even win the game. I don't know where you got your coffee from this morning, Hugh, but I definitely, <laughs> I definitely want to find out because 
that isn't a man who's excited about a one-all draw as I've ever heard. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I agree. The second half was much better. I didn't think the first half was great. I thought they were a bit cautious. I mean, I don't know about you, but I thought the fullbacks were a bit cautious in the first half. Given that we were playing with two holding midfielders, I thought Luke Shaw and Luke Shaw in particular, as he did really well during the Euros, could have bombed on a bit more. He did that better in the second half. I take your point about the swagger and the control and the confidence. If I was to then be critical to some of your points, there wasn't a lot of chances created really, was there? Um, it was kind of reliant on those brief and brilliant drops of the shoulder that Raheem Sterling does and that quick change of pace that he so often brings to an England attack. But he didn't, he didn't deliver the ball. He I didn't deliver like the ball. No, I, agree. I don't know I why, because he got in behind a couple of times and yeah. then he didn't flash the ball across the face of the goal or look for a player. He just kept dribbling it. And actually his decision-making on the evening, as great as he's been recently, wasn't up to scratch, I don't think. No, I agree. I agree. There were certain points in the second half, one in particular where he got down the right and I think even the substitutes on the sideline, Jesse Lingard was saying, put the ball in. So that would that would be my next thing. I think you're right. You know, reflecting on the Euros, I was sat there watching and thinking, come on, this, this team is a very, very highly prof- professional and impressive team. Let's not be too uh, over the top in our criticism. But I, I think that's the next thing. It's turning that swagger that you talk about, turning that control turning that possession into chances. And I don't think they did it that much. Let's be honest, we scored with a long-range strike from Harry Kane. But they got the goal. They went 1-0 up. Yep. And honestly, you know, I've spoken about my feelings in that final where in the Euro 2020 final against Italy, I was in the crowd screaming at the bench, make a change, make a change. You could see the opposition was were growing and it was like, you need to do something now. As a manager, Gareth Southgate, you need to do something. We've spoken about it so many times about how the managers were going to be the difference. And the exact same thing happened yesterday. There was a triple substitution with 10 minutes to go. Poland had already made two changes prior to that. So they changed half of their entire outfield. England hadn't made a change. And suddenly the ball started sticking with their forwards a little bit more. And when it did, they were able to get bodies sprinting forward. And you thought, right, we need something here to just shore things up because they've got fresh legs on. They, of course, haven't got the same qualities as the England squad, but we definitely need something. Honestly, Connor Cody, I know he was warming up for a long time because John Stones looked like he was going to come off. He did more work up and down that touchline than half the England players on the pitch. I was amazed he did. I was amazed he wasn't just rewarded by coming on for the effort he'd put in warming up. He's one of those. He was looking over the gas. Do you need me? Do you need me? Do you need me? I loved it. I love absolutely love seeing it. But you know, I, I just think. It's professional football. They've played three games in a short space of time. You're away from home. It was about 22 degrees inside the stadium. Not overly hot, but the players were getting a drink whenever they could. So you could tell, you know, you needed a little bit of freshness. And speaking to Gareth Southgate afterwards, he said, well, we were in such control of the match that I didn't think we needed to, to change it, which I, again, you know, you're only in control of the match until you can see the goal, which is, it always seems to be the case with England under Gareth Southgate. Um, one of the, the interesting things was as well, I spoke to Calvin Phillips straight after the game. He got a yellow card early in the match and you could tell from the sideline that he wasn't going in for his usual challenges because he knew he's on a yellow. Those are the sorts of things that you would expect the manager to change. Krakowiak of Poland got an early yellow card as well. And he lasted about an hour before the manager said, we got to take him off because he just can't, we need him to put in challenges. We need someone who's stopping the ball. And eventually, you know, Jack Grealish is just going to skin him and he'll get sent off. So he got taken off and Calvin Phillips 
admitted himself that he had to play a little bit within his own game because he couldn't go into the same number of challenges. Those are the small nuances that you expect the manager to pick up on and make a change. I don't think we had the legs towards the end of the game. And I think that's what allowed Poland to, to get their equaliser. So that's the only small criticism. I know a lot of fans absolutely hate the fact he didn't make any subs. Gregor? I think you're right to, to pitch it in that that you know in that context. It's a small criticism. England, where England have come on leaps and bounds, there's no... There's no two ways about that. And I agree. I was watching it thinking, yeah, you've got Mount and Grealish kind of linking up and these players that are that they can create things. I know they, they didn't create many chances, but they can make things happen. And yeah, I, that's, this is quite new, I think, <laughs> for England. Um, and the substitutes point, you, you, you know, you're looking at it now, you think who, maybe Bellingham could have come on, give some energy in midfield. Saka for someone, one of the more attacking players, a bit more, you know, energy and zip on and off the ball. But it really, the goal came because Kyle Walker was done by by Moder by that moment, really. And Kyle Walker had a few sloppy moments. You could tell he was starting to tire. But do you really? This is a game that matters. We were talking about this last week. This is a game where you don't just you don't just change your back four unless someone's injured. Really, that doesn't happen. You know, I, I don't think you're going to change. You're really going to make a change in the back four, Gregor. You say that he had two players about to come on on in the 90th minute. So he had readied Jesse Lingard and Bakayo Saka. He was going to change the two wingers. One nil up on the 90th minute away from home. There wasn't, let's stick an extra midfielder in there. Let's stick an extra defender in there. Let's just see through the final four minutes. He's changing his wide player. So even the, the changes that he wanted to make were probably not going to be the right ones for the situation. It is situational football. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think, as I say, Bellingham could have gone in midfield. But otherwise, they're they're the right subs. They could have done them ten minutes earlier. I don't think you're going to change the back four. A back four who's defending together and as a unit and have played through eighty plus minutes and looked pretty solid, apart from when Pickford, you know, took a dodgy kick and nearly stuck it into his own net. Um, it was just that the last the last five or ten minutes. Kyle Walker, as I say, a few kind of sloppy passes that just it helped the pressure come on, and then one moment where he was done. And that really is why England... But it's like the fine margins and you're not entitled to win every single game. It's a, uh, and, and Poland, Poland were a good side. They grew in stature and they, they, their substitutes did make a difference. I'm, not, I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm not sure that England's substitutes would have made the difference that we're talking about. Kyle Walker still might have been done in the same way and you still got you know, a, a giant... Yeah, but you, you, mentioned, you mentioned the sloppy passes that invited the pressure. And fresh players usually don't make those errors. Tired players make those but errors. You can flip so, that conversation and say, if you put Reese James on or Alexander-Arnold on or Trippi on with five or ten, five to ten minutes to go in a kind of pretty hostile atmosphere uh, and, you know, changing up the back four, that's also something that if if he'd been done, you go, why did you change the back four? You know, th- this is this is football. I don't think... Personally, it's England fans. Think, we need to nitpick. Think, <laughs> we need to nitpick. I know, I've learned that. I've learned that hardly. <laughs> Alison, your thoughts? Uh, well, first of all, Marcus, good morning. And um, thank you. <laughs> I, I, and, and, and I did like the name dropping at the start of the show, Marrow. That was, um, that was lovely. Um, no, I, have a, I have a theory about, um, which I've only just come to, so it's not, I haven't spent that long on it. But I have a theory that uh, England managers are inherently very poor at the substitutes game because they have they spend far too long pandering to the clubs and 
Um, so you are told, well, I'll let, you know, I'll let my uh, midfielder join you, but, you know, you've got to guarantee me he will only play one of the two games or I don't want him playing more than 45, 45 minutes. There's always a stipulation that the club comes first and you have to eke out how you use your players, which means it sort of builds into a different sort of game in game management, if you like. So Gareth Southgate is not, if you compare his approach to a competitive match and that of a club manager, he's not thinking about the stats as they relate to the game he's watching. He's thinking about what he's promised the club managers. He's, he's, that, that game was not not run the way a club manager would have run it. There are various, various club managers where you can almost, and I used to play it then I got bored of the game, but I would always say, you know, okay, guarantee 69 minutes, sub one's going to come on, 72 minutes, sub two's going to, I mean, you, you could predict the managers that generally go for that 65 minute to 70 window because they've plotted it out. That's how they run the game. International, well, sorry, this international manager has not had that level of, it's almost like I'm saying he's not selfish enough. It's as though he's never really thought of substitutes as a, they're for me and they de- they determine how my match and my tactics and my players run this game. It's it's more it's more political. So when it really matters, as it has done in his crucial games in his career, he's got it wrong. He's got it wrong because he's not astute and on top of the way you you have to be selfish. And the England manager, whoever he is, is never selfish enough. I don't disagree with some of Alison's points. I think. I was trying to think about this beforehand in terms of what substitutions are for. And I mean, the first thing is to change tactics, to change how a game is going because it's not going the way that you want it to. The second reason probably is to ch- to refresh fresh some f- fresh legs, put some fresh legs on, etc. Or just literally to change a like-for-like position for an injury or for something else. And I mean, I was trying to think, but is the third reason quite literally just to kill time or to kill the momentum of an opposition? And I think that's where I'd maybe defend Gareth Southgate a little bit in that he said, well, the tactics were working. Hugh, you started this podcast by saying how brilliant they were. He said, look, I've got some top professionals, quite a young team, quite a young squad early in the season. Right, They're all all fit. They've all got fresh legs. No one looked particularly tired. So you're then into the third reason of, well, the only reason to make a change, as you said, he had them lined up towards the end, is to just kill a little bit of that momentum that Poland seemed to generate in those final few moments. And so that's probably where you can only criticise him. And if it is just that, then maybe I'm kind of slightly with Gregor in that it's not that much of a disaster. If he had his time again, yeah, maybe you'd have put two players on just to slow things down and done them in a gradual, done one and then done another one and just completely killed killed that game. We know managers who do that all the time. In this occasion, this has been a disastrous moment for Gareth Southgate. First time England have made no substitutions in a game for 25 years, Gregor. I mean, it was a it was a big decision. Another point is that who, who would you want in the kind of final throws of a game more than like Jack Grealish taking you know winning fouls and like riding challenges and stuff? Um, I'd say you could probably argue the same about Sterling. I think Kane was maybe one. I, I'll say it again. I think and I think it all actually it all changed quite quickly too. England were in real control, and it was kind of only those last five minutes where. As I say, there was a few misplaced passes. They invited pressure a bit more. They didn't clear it properly, that kind of thing. And the momentum just slowly and gradually built. And I'll say again, it was really an error 
that led to the goal. So, um, you know, he would have had to make a quick decision there. And uh, yes, there's no reason why he couldn't have done it. But I don't think there was enough you'd seen over the 80 plus minutes to say we should change Kyle Walker. The same about Shaw. I don't really think there was. I think it happened quite quickly and very marginal things, you know, decide matches. And How many games can you remember that you played in your career where the manager made no substitutions? I mean, not not that many, obviously. Tell the truth. I had to take him off after time. <laughs> can you remember you any? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, just the games I was Oh, God, Robertson's <laughs> down again, for God's sake. I'm going to get on 20 minutes. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, can I remember any? No, there will have been games. Yeah, there will have been games. From your perspective, though, partly that's because partly that's because of the, what you have in uh, in reserve. And the other yeah. argument, the th- other thing about this is England have an embarrassment of riches, and you know the people at ho- sitting at home watching on TV that you could think would be you know good, good players to throw in in this game. So that is another valid argument. But I just think the way that this game unfolded, uh, you should not be using this as a stick to beat Gareth Southgate with too strongly. But isn't it, does anyone think that Southgate is in some ways by not bringing on a single substitute, sort of trying to alter perception of what he is? I mean, he, you could you could caricature him as somebody who's a bit obsessed with giving players their debuts, trying to make as many young men possible in the world that he can. He, I mean, he's always fiddling and you, it's, it's, it's it's always the future, isn't it? And, you know, at the World Cup, it was, oh, with the Euros, and then the Euros, it's, oh, we're building for the World Cup. And it's it's getting a bit tiresome, that. And I I wonder if he just thought, he felt a tiny bit smug that he might be edging towards a settled 11 and wanted to sort of show that he's not going to keep on always giving <laughs> debuts to teenagers and start start having a team that, has a bit of authority and maybe instills fear in the opposition. And again, I don't think that's having an agenda like that isn't necessarily a good idea because, you know, he needs, he needs not to worry about image. There's a lot of image worrying going on with England. I feel We've done a deep dive on this guys. Gareth Southgate Southgate made no subs and now it's just, you know, it's, it's, we're into his character. We're into his character now. (laughs) Maybe he just forgot. Like it was a long summer. The Euros went on a long time. Cody talks a lot as well too, doesn't he? He's always kind of chirping away there. It's just that's normal. Connor Cody like, has stuff. started chatting about some new Netflix series he started watching and Gareth's thinking, oh yeah, that'll be quite nice once we get this out of the way. What time's the flight? Maybe I'll download that. Oh, bollocks, they've scored. Oh, crap. Yeah, so I don't want to go too deep on him. I thought England were, as I say, I was sitting in the stadium thinking, this is as good and as confident and as arrogant as I've seen England playing. It was a big step for, towards... For me, like seeing a team that is actually probably capable of winning a World Cup, I know that sounds like I'm I'm stretching now, but what I mean was there was a sense of real control and a, and a real swagger about England for some time. And they looked re- an elite team, a really elite team. I know they got to the final of the Euros, but, you know, there were, were still question marks. And maybe there are still question marks after the result last night. But but I, I really, during that dominant period, thought, wow, wow. You had to feel the same against Hungary too. Hungary were a team that, caused a nation that caused uh, some big countries really difficult games in the Euros and they absolutely dispatched them like as you say with swagger and that was a bit of a different team too so look yeah, un- unquestionably you're in that group of the top nations now 
who should be regarded as favourites to win the World Cup. Good. I'm, I'm astounded uh, by uh, that, uh, yeah. but, I'm, but I'm very happy. <laughs> no, I mean, I never saw it come in five years ago. Let's put it that way. But I think you've got to say that the, the players that have come through, the managers brought something new. And I just think England, you know, uh, uh, look, Harry Kane's going to be a big part of it. He scored three goals in the last three games. He scored again last night. Um, I don't think he's, I still don't think he's 100% so far in this season, um, but he's getting there and he's still scoring about 80%. So, you know, it's going to be a big season for him once again, I think. He's now fifth, standalone fifth on the record goal scorers for men in England football history, which is fantastic for him. Gregor, maybe you're right. For me, I still think he's overplayed. You know, 3-0 up against Hungary, left on the pitch for 90 minutes, played half an hour against Andorra. Not sure he needed to. Then last night, I think you're right, maybe a bit tired in the last 10 minutes, but he's still England's talisman. You know, it was Kane versus Lewandowski. That's how it was billed. Kane 1-0, Tom? Uh, Yes, definitely. And I actually think it was probably 2-0 to England overall because I think John Stones and Harry Maguire were excellent against Lewandowski. He got away from them a couple of times, but with a few kind of lucky touches and a few lucky bounces, I think... That was another thing I reflected on when thinking we're going to be on a podcast talking about England. I mean, think of to a year ago talking about England's disastrous defence and what a nightmare it is and whether you play three or two and how we've got no centre-backs. John Stones looks absolutely Rolls-Royce. The guy like playing with a cigar in his mouth most of the time and he's well up for the scrap as well. Thought he was going to have to go off injured, played on. I thought he was superb. So as much as it's the old kind of Kane v Lewandowski, I think we should, we should give some praise to John Stones because I thought he was superb. And Hugh, I'm surprised you haven't asked uh, Gregor if he's ever had his neck pinched in a game. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Camel I thought Glick that was quite cheeky from Camel Glick. Yeah, it was quite cute because I was watching it thinking he's kind of stroking him, but in that way, that, like, that's really <laughs> annoying. Carl Walker didn't even react to it. So I think all of the, so many people on social media were saying that's, that's what caused the halftime melee. But it, honestly, it wasn't. Camel Glick ran over to the referee who I thought had an atrocious game, Daniel Siever, and um, at halftime, and he was remonstrating with him, but he was physically very, very close to him to the point that the referee sort of moved Camel Glick's hands off of him. And then Harry Maguire ran in. I think he was either defending the referee or trying to say that the click should be sent off for manhandling the ref, basically. And um, and that's the point that all hell broke loose, basically, and all the players piled in. Um, but I think England dealt well with, you know, they expect that sort of stuff right now and people trying to put them off. There was a lot There was a lot on Grealish. He was fouled constantly. I cannot believe the right back at the time wasn't given a booking because every time Grealish got the ball, he was fouled for about 50 minutes. It was incredible. And, and the ref was just slow to hand out yellows to Poland. But I, I, there was a part, point on Grealish where I know everyone was saying, who's, you know, the player that you want at the end of the game, winning you free kicks, et cetera, et cetera. But the point was Grealish kept getting the ball and then he checks back, but he checks back and he teases the defender and he teases the defender and he teases the defender. And all the while he's going back towards his own half, basically, his own centre circle. And I just think you're playing in an attacking position for England. You've gone away from home. It's great to keep the ball you know, great to skin people, great to get them booked. You know, when it got to that final third and he was attacking, you know, the ball wasn't going in the box. You know, Luke Shaw kept doubling up with him, kept giving Grealish the ball. And at times you were just like, deliver, deliver. You don't have to tease the defender every single time you get it. Gregor, go on then. You disagree. No, I think, no, no, I just think that the, if Soski is now going to, which it looks like, is now going to start him, 
I think the relationships will develop with him, and it's all it, a lot of it is you know interplay around the box. There's times where you know you cut inside and he just makes half a yard and he plays a pass inside and he makes a run and it didn't follow and he's throwing his hands in the air. I think it'll be interesting to see how that develops for England and for Manchester City. And the thing you're talking about, it's true. So many times he comes, he's almost coming back over his own halfway line with the ball at his feet and you, anyone else you think please mate just pass it like you're going to get tackled and they're going to run through and score and he just takes another touch and rides the challenge and stuff I think it'll be interest, interesting to see how much of that is ironed out his game I think if Pep Guardiola is watching his players do that instead of just passing the ball you will be going crazy so you know the evolution of Jack Grealish in the coming season is going to be fascinating yeah but have you tick- ever tickled anyone's neck that's what Alison wanted to know <laughs> no <laughs> sorry Alison the answer is no that was a long answer did anyone that. ever tickle your neck no, a few of those kind of sneaky ones where you know somebody like looks like they're trying to give you a, a pat, but they just really are digging their finger in your collarbone and stuff like that. Yeah, what did you do? Pinch the bomb? Little pinch you ever bomb? do the old the old Vinnie Jones? <laughs> Two slaps, yeah. Nipple pinch at a corner. We know what goes on. Tell the truth. <laughs> no, no, that was a good, good lad, obviously. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he is. He's very clean cut, everyone, if you haven't seen Gregor Robertson. Very well behaved. Um, look, England were great last night. I don't want to criticise them too, not, too much. I know it feels like we have, so apologies for that. But again, there was a lot of swagger from the England side and they will definitely qualify for the World Cup. So no more nitpicking on England for a while. We'll get back to the Premier League stuff. In fact, we will have a go at FIFA and UEFA and others next. Uh, but remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Right, up next, guys. Uh, one of the big stories of the week. Um, I don't know if it's Arsene Wenger specifically that's touted it, but he has been talking about it, and I think that's the reason that it's hit headlines. A biennial World Cup every two years. Our very own Martin Ziegler's actually been speaking to the UEFA president, Alexander Seferin. You can check that out in the Times right now. Seferin says he cannot believe that FIFA went public with their ideas without talking to UEFA He basically says, good luck with this. He thinks it would be absolutely dreadful for the game. 99.9% of people who like football would probably agree with him, which makes it seem very weird that FIFA want to do this, Tom. It does a little bit. It it reminded me a little bit of the kind of Super League conversations where a lot of, um, I don't want to say purists, but... A lot of the people, whether it's journalists or fans of the game who, or ex-players, people have been immersed in the game, should we say, don't like seismic change of this nature because it messes with some traditions. But now I, I, don't, I don't like the idea because I think a World Cup is kind of almost sacred and it would spoil the idea of having it more than every four years. But as we discussed with the Super League, there is a new breed of football fan now which engages with the game in a completely different way to how we did. We're going to talk about it later when we talk about um, games on TV and things who would probably absolutely love a World Cup every two years. And they're the people that FIFA are probably thinking about. They're the people that are going to watch it on streams, on their phones, around the world all the time. And, you know, it's all very nice for these kind of presidents of the game and various federations to start bleating about player, player welfare and all. They'll be so tired don't really give a stuff about that the rest of the time, do they, when they're talking about expanding the Champions League and all that kind of stuff. Um, so th- there's an element of slight hypocrisy, I think, to some of these things. I, I thoroughly recommend anyone to read uh, the Seferin interview that we've got going in the Times. It's very, very punchy. And he also talks about other things as well uh, as the biennial World Cup. So uh, trying to play devil's advocate that while not liking it myself, I can understand the thinking 
behind FIFA's idea because there are a lot of fans who would absolutely love a, two, a World Cup every two years. I don't think it's got anything to do with fans. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> and they're, and they're, no, it's not to do with fans. It's to do with well, the money well, that the fans the, will the generate. Of, yeah, yeah, well, that's yeah exactly. but there's the money that those fans that. will generate. Come on, I'll teed you up. This is an extension of the Super League. It's all about money. It's FIFA versus UEFA. It's about wanting a control of the of the kind of fixture schedules and a bigger slice of the pie, basically. I was reading that if you go over a four year cycle where every every major competition is concerned, FIFA's revenues are sixty percent of UEFA's. That's because of the Champions League. And this is obviously, you know, they're having this whole conversation without even discussing where FIFA's new idea for a World Club Cup is going to go. This is about money and power. That's what, It's an extension of the Super League. It's just a d- different organisations and different people trying to grab their slice. Yeah, worth noting that FIFA uh, have a huge black hole where money should be right now. So um, one of those organisations struggling financially, and maybe that's why this idea has come about. What do you think about it, Alison? Well, first of all, it's a slight disaster because if I have flags in my windows all the time, <laughs> the, the neighbours will complain and it will lose its novelty. I feel I get away with it because it's, you know, set stages of, of their lives. If it's just every three weeks, then not going to happen. Secondly, it's really interesting to have it there as a topic because it lets um, – Everyone know what biennial actually means. A lot of people think it, <laughs> think it means twice a year. Come on, did anyone think that when they first heard the word? I think you might have. And uh, I so, definitely did. It, it, you see, so it's educational. I mean, these things these things are. Um, I'm not. I don't object to them being discussed at all. Why? Not? I mean, you've always got a plot for the future future of the sport and so on. I, I suspect there is a complete schism between the fans that Tom, I don't know, the sort of breed of person that Tom's um, talking about. I don't know those people who stream and would watch constant, constant World Cup type games. I, don't, I mean, that's, I mean, it's about, it's not about that, is it? It's, it's the same, it's the old, working in a chocolate factory um, argument. If you have access to too many sweet things, you you throw up and you don't want them. The World Cup would lose its beauty if it was not every four years. Everyone knows that deep down, I think, except for these people who have very pale skin who watch their lives unfolding on a screen. I don't think we should pander to them anyway, Tom. Football for real people, that's what I say. That's the other thing. This is strange about this. Arsene Wenger used to complain (laughs) on a a monthly basis about the workload on players. Is the cheerleader for this? I think he's in danger of damaging his legacy a bit here. You know, he's trying to say there won't be any more load on the players. There'll be, you know, we can we can group uh, qualifiers into into a month kind of thing. There is a conversation to be had about the kind of value of of these qualifiers. We, We just watched, you know, the Poland game was an outlier because it was an actual challenge for England. You know, it's just a procession for a lot of countries. So there's a conversation to be had about reevaluating the qualification process, and I think there's pro- there probably is going to be a reevaluation of football generally in the coming years because of this battle between FIFA and UEFA, and you know who's trying to. I think they're trying to shift the power away from Europe too. You know, basically all the money is generated in ch- by the Champions League. All four of the semi-finalists of the last World Cup were from Europe. 
I think Infantino is seeing a, a window here of saying we can generate more revenue and distribute it to the rest of the world, not just Europe. And he's going to win a lot of votes from that. So I think probably as much as we're all saying this is this is an abomination, it's probably got some legs to run yet. What about every three years? What about a summer where you? <laughs> what about a summer where it's like the youth tournaments and the, and the women's World Cup in one window, and then the next year we have the regional tournaments, the Copper America and the Euros, for example, and then the next year we have a FIFA World Cup. Could you? Could you? you could, Are you describing triennials here, Hugh? If that's, you if that's the word, I, 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 no I, did, I didn't know what biennial meant until this story came out. So God knows what triennial triennial means. But um, no, no, I'm just asking genuinely, Alison. Would you accept, you know, five World Cups in 15 years? Would your neighbours accept it? More importantly, <laughs> so I'd be able to make a betting case for it as long as I made a few cupcakes to go with the uh, to go with the announcement. Um, no, 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 and no. I mean, it's already bugging me that because of COVID, we're gonna we're already talking about Qatar and it's looming, and I don't. It's all too soon. No, 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 no. If anything, if you push me, I'd say uh, have them further apart. Really? How often? Uh, I think once in your lifetime's enough. Really. <laughs> <laughs> It would be a pretty big deal, though, uh, if it was once a lifetime. Just put every country in the world in it, of course. The only way I'll be sold is if they make it easy for Scotland to qualify. They've already made it very easy. <laughs> They've opened it up to 48 leagues. teams, haven't they? I know, yeah. But listen, there's no guarantees here. So <laughs> to guarantee Scotland a place in the World Cup, I'm all for it. I don't see how it works. And I, I actually think it's a terrible idea. But it's weird. There just seems to be so many terrible ideas in football at the moment it seems it almost seems like it's political you know I don't know what's going on behind the scenes at FIFA but I I wonder if these are just dead cats and we should really be looking into what's going on you know they've done unseemly things behind the scenes before that's all I'm saying you know keep your eyes on the prize you know all the all the investigative journalists out there because it just seems a bit of a red herring to me I don't think it's going to happen I don't think football fans would ever go for it and Alexander Zephyrin in the Times um, today basically saying as much Let's move on, though, to something else that is a contentious, another contentious thing in football, the 3 p.m. blackout, something I personally love. But a lot of people raising question marks over the fact that they will not be able to see live Cristiano Ronaldo's second coming at Manchester United because it is at three o'clock on a Saturday when they take on Newcastle. And that means that we won't be watching it live on TV. Now, I personally have no issues with this. Firstly, do Manchester United's games all have to be on TV? No, they don't. Yes, we should keep a gap. I truly believe we should keep a gap so that not all games are live to incentivize people to go. That is the culture of our football in this country. If you need something to keep people going to either the big clubs or their local clubs, I think it's massively important. So I have no issues with this, even as a Manchester United fan. But I know many people think it's ridiculous. Every game should be live. That's what we've become accustomed to. I just don't see that argument. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a post-COVID thing here, isn't there, in that we all got incredibly used to football being the sole entertainment in our lives for a long time, even people who weren't uh, immersed in the game in the way we are. I mean, I had it with my dad when this season started, Lincoln's first away game against Wickham. I was working on the Saturday. Thought, oh, I'll be able to put it on iFollow and be able to stick it on in the background while I'm working and couldn't do it. And they'd got rid of it as an option for this season. And I thought that was fantastic because what that made me do was immediately look up trains to Oxford for the next away game. Um, And so it just, you know, reset my thinking and put me back into the old way of uh, being a fan. 
So yeah, you're right. It's that's a good thing. But I come back again to the way people consume football, and I was thinking about Ronaldo's first debut for Manchester United and how I watched it on Match of the Day, and how they, that still conveyed all the excitement of this kid with the mad hair doing all these stepovers. Um, but I don't know whether how many football fans younger than me watch Match of the Day anymore. And so that's what people are getting at, is that kind of access to this mega star, because that is one of the big allures of him coming back to the Premier League, that he is this super, super, superstar, one of the most famous people in the world. And he's unreachable for a lot of people who want to engage with his, with his second debut. Just very quickly, does anyone remember who his first debut was against for Manchester United? Um, I want to see someone like Portsmouth, but it probably wasn't. Incorrect, but you're in the right area. Wigan. Well, it can't be, can't be that many. Southampton. Incorrect. Oh, area of ge- geographically. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I meant, sorry, oh. area of like club. <laughs> okay. Sunderland. No, nah, it was against Bolton. Bolton. I know, if you've not got that, you're not going to get <laughs> He was kicked by Nicky Hunt, the right back, quite a lot. Oh, I actually watched the highlights before we came on the show. Uh, and the other quiz question, which I'll do for listeners who can scream in, who did he come on for? Who He came off the bench and replaced which Manchester United player? Cleberson? No. Jemba Jemba? Nicky Butt. But. Came on for Nicky Butt. Did some stuff. I was got. That's showing his kind of, you know, the generations he spanned. How much he's been he's around. Coming back at 37, yeah. it's incredible. Nicky Hunt and Nicky Butt and Cristiano. Sorry to spring a quick quiz on you, but... I, that's okay. Yeah. I think that's, again, that's what we're talking about. It's that generation of fans who were upset about it and who were the ones who were obsessed on social media about his return. They're like, well, I want to be able to watch this. I want to be able to stream this. I want to be able to engage with this. I don't want to have to wait until 10.30 to watch a load of old blokes on the BBC. Ah, they should get a grip. Honestly, I think it's rather beautiful, given the cult of personality going on here, that it is being treated as a normal three o'clock game. This is English football. Get a grip and wait your turn. I, I, <laughs> certainly, I certainly would not approve of any rejigging of the schedule just for one personality. That would be abhorrent. And I think it will help highlight shows such as Match of the Day for people to have to tune in and see it, how they portray it, how they cover it um, in the highlight shows. Good. It's good. You can't, you can't just get what you want all the time. Jeez, honestly, spoiled brats everywhere. I agree. It has been funny, though, when you kind of read these things saying that the UK, along with Cuba, Turkmenistan, North Korea and Afghanistan are the only nations who can't watch this game. That does, you know, that's quite a, a compelling argument for this. And it makes me think, you know, could they not just, I know it's very short notice, could there not be like one, you know, in the contract, it probably would be Sky's contract, could there not be one game a season in extraordinary circumstances that they could change and obviously not to a different day, not to like inconvenience fans too much to make it the night game on the Saturday or something like that. I'd, you know, maybe, maybe. But the bigger thing, you know, the... People argue, they look at Germany, they, they, they show all the games anytime uh, and they've still got 90% plus capacity stadiums. That's because their tickets are cheaper though. Exactly, they treat fans better. But also, this is not about the Premier League. It's not about people not going to watch the Watford game or to go to watch you know whatever Premier League game. It's about the vibrant pyramid beneath it that is 
unrivaled in anywhere in the world and the impact it could potentially have on that. So that, you know, for, you won't be surprised to hear me say that that, that, that this should be resisted for that reason alone. And I also, there's also too, there's, there's too much football on TV already. Like, I wouldn't say you should have, you know, change it to the night game, maybe, but don't open up another window of opportunity for more football, more live football. I love football, but there's too much of it on TV. It's on every single night of the week. That's too much. I have, I have a young child now. I, I want to see her. <laughs> it's like, it's just, Get into it's, football. It's already overwhelming. Yeah. So having that one window, one very small window, keep it that way. No, 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 Gregor. It's, I'm amazed you're saying that. It's a team game. You can't have as an extraordinary, extraordinary circumstance the fact that one player has signed for a club. It may not that be is, that. That is the antithesis of what football is. Everyone's tuning in just to watch one man. Alison, the contract's going to change next time around. The, the broadcasters have the ultimate sway, and there it will be some be sort would, of yeah, some sort of clause put into the next agreement that says, at short notice, we reserve the right to change a fixture at least once or twice a season. Fine, but I don't think the reason. I don't think the reason should be because of one individual. That's a different. That's a different argument. This is about the three pm blackout, anyway, isn't it? We're talking. No, we're talking about both things, Gregor. We're talking about three pm blackouts, and why we're talking about three pm blackouts is because okay. no one can watch Cristiano Ronaldo. They could watch him any other time. I, I would be okay with that personally. It'll be on the bench at this rate. <laughs> it would be. It would be brilliant, wouldn't it? I would have respected Oli enough forever if they'd moved it to like five thirty, and then he'd been like, nah. <laughs> On the bench, son. Genuinely, it would not surprise me if Manchester United didn't include him in the match day squad at all until their, their game was shown live. They've not had a terrible start to the season. Mason Greenwood's been scoring goals. Stick him on the bench. Not up to fitness yet. Not up oh, to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Because you're what you're so that, yes, this is a very good point, Tom, because the ultimate expression of saying, oh, the cameras should be there. We should be allowed to watch it live is then you're, the TV people are not only paying money, they're choosing the team because it's not going to yeah. go down very well if you rejig the schedule and then he isn't playing and that puts extra pressure on the manager and that's that's not right either, is it? I don't think, well, it wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't influence the manager. Ooh, it not would. Not Spain. There are big powers at play at organisations <laughs> as big as Manchester United, genuinely. So you never know. He has a lot of good players. Manchester United are playing well. You know, he's just going to ease Cristiano Ronaldo into the season. I think he's made two appearances for Juventus already. Not that many. So, you know, might just ease him in. And also, if he misses the game against Newcastle completely, his debut will be in the Champions League. You know, all the glitz and glamour that goes along with that midweek next week. So I just think personally, the 3pm blackout is, is needs to stay in place to protect the football pyramid. Exactly what Gregor said. But my argument has always been that there's absolutely no reason for Premier League games to be at three o'clock on a Saturday. You've got a time slot for kickoff on a Friday night, an early one on Saturday, a 5.30 on Saturday. You can do a night game on Saturday. You've got three kickoff times on a Sunday that you can put matches on and you've got a Monday night and you've only got 10 games to fit into all of those slots. So you don't really need to put games at three o'clock on a Saturday if you want them all to be televised. Put three games on at 5.30 on a Saturday if you care that much. The money is so much. I think a lot of fans will be shouting at the radio or whatever they listen to just now saying, what about when our last train home is? What about, you know, travel arrangements? What about these things? So 3 p.m. I think I was reading there's a, you know, the most recent poll of fans that is by a country mile, the favoured time. There's a lot of people who actually would actually not want to go if it was on any other time than a 3 p.m. on a Saturday. And they maybe don't. Yeah. 
Well, I was at 3 p.m. because you don't, you, you still have lunch with your family and you still have supper with your family. I think it was family. actually because like people poured out the factories on a Saturday and it was a half day and they went straight to the football match. That was the original reason. But Got tanked up and then went to the football. But still, <laughs> it's it's the middle of the day. You, you don't have to get up at ridiculous o'clock and hope you can get a train early enough to get to somewhere at the other end of the country and you don't, and you know you can get home afterwards. Yeah, that's a bit. Look, I think we agree. Ultimately, that three pm should stay. And look, if Manchester United occasionally have to play at three o'clock, well, welcome to the club. So does everyone else. So um, you know, I have absolutely no issues with it. Like I say, and I'm a Man United fan. I think the latest research as well about thirty five to forty percent of football fans actually see the Premier League goals for the first time on a weekend during match of the day. So it's still hugely popular, massive audience, and loads of football fans are used to it. So it's not like we, you know, you're breaking the mould in terms of their footballing habit. Uh, on Ronaldo, up next, we're going to be talking about returns for footballers to whatever club it might be, the best and the worst. Stay with us on the game. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Finally, as Cristiano Ronaldo is returning to Manchester United, the second coming of the great one, I'm sure the Manchester United fans are really looking forward to it. He's not the only one who's gone back to one of their former clubs and either done great or, let's be fair, not done amazingly well. Gregor, I haven't even thought about this. You haven't gone back to anyone before. Oh, God, no, they didn't want me. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I even had the opportunity, so, so that, yeah. No, they really work. They really work in my in my uh, experience. There's one or two I'll, we'll talk about I played with that, that did work, but go on. No, 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 go ahead. Tell us now. Sorry, sorry. Well, I, I think a few a few um, listeners got in touch to, when you tweeted about this and Des Walker was the one who I played alongside. So basically our back four was Des Walker, who was twice my age. I was 19, Michael Dawson, he was the same age as me. And Wes Morgan was often in that. Um, so <laughs> having, having Des Walker, a guy twice your age, kind of to lead us through. And he also almost got, the season before I got on the team, almost got Forrest back in the Premier League as, um, as captain. He fell short in the playoffs. So I think his, his comeback after, you know, legendary status, coming back to a club in the championship, even at the ripe old age of 35 plus, could be regarded as a big success. What, what was he like to play with? Very talkative and very 
demanding. <laughs> yeah. In a bad way. No, no, well, in a good way. Like I always say that if there's things that stayed with me throughout my career and it was just because of one moment, one vignette in a game where I remember Des Walker turning around and saying, oh, you stay in line with me. Like if I was playing someone on side or something, like there's little frames that I remember from playing alongside him that stayed with me for the rest of my career. So he was very good and he was always very good with young lads. He kind of give them a, a word of advice and uh, helping them through, helping them progress their careers. Epic. Tom, are you going to tell us about one of Lincoln's greats? I mean, there is a good one. It's yeah. been a while, hasn't it? It's been a while. Come on. It's been a while. Uh, so Lee Frecklington, when I was growing up, Lincoln <laughs> didn't really didn't really do good players. We tended to sign players and me and my dad would be like, who the hell is this guy? And then he'd play for us for a season and then he'd retire or disappear. Lee Frecklington was a young player who came through for Lincoln. He was a brilliant midfielder. Loved a long-range strike, basically the League Two, Stephen Gerrard. Let's go with that. Um, anyway, went off to the Championship, had a good career with Rotherham. And then when we got quite good again under the Cowleys, he came back. He won the uh, EFL Trophy with us at Wembley and he won League Two with us and got us promoted. And I also was there for his debut where he scored an absolutely brilliant side-footed volley into the top corner and he came and celebrated in front of me and my dad. So, I mean, you can't do much better than that. Coming back to your hometown club, just bringing tears to the eyes, guys, honestly. <laughs> Was that the one that you were going to say all along or did you pick some sort of Premier League or European superstar instead? I, didn't, I, didn't, I did have another one, if you weren't going to allow me, Lincoln, and that's um, Gigi Buffon. Uh, or, you know, slightly, slightly more famous than Lee Frecklington. I don't know if mm. you've heard of him. Um, <laughs> uh, Gigi Buffon, this summer, me and my brother were talking about it. Both got an uh, affection for goalkeepers, as you can tell from my Jordan Pickford fan club. We loved the fact that he'd gone back to Parma this, this summer, age 43, still got it in goal, still looks absolutely fantastic, doesn't he? I mean, the lad is 11 years older than me, and my God, if I look that good at 43, Jesus. Uh, Not going to happen, don't worry about it. <laughs> ah, cheers, thanks, mate. Uh, and it, he's pulling off great saves, and have only recently kept a clean sheet uh, in a 1-0 win against Benevento. So just in case you've not heard of Lee Frecklington, Gigi Buffon back to Palmer is my other shout. Alison? Well, I obviously went for um, a Liverpool example, but also one I think that is instructive given we're talking about this because of the return of Ronaldo. So Ian Rush, he was a goal machine for Liverpool for seven years and then he went to Juventus and he was not a goal machine and he wasn't very happy. He didn't say the famous phrase he was supposed to say that it's a bit like a foreign country but if that does sum up how he felt about it he just didn't work for him but when he came back um what's interesting is that um we all thought we'd miss him terribly and we didn't really and he had to fight for his place and it he was a success and he did he did win the fa cup final um against everton sort of single-handedly but he you know, most people thought maybe Aldridge was now the better striker and he, he had to work at it. And it was not, um, you know, he's the red carpet, welcome home, rushy. It was done properly. And so I hope that in the same way that Ronaldo feels he has to work at it, that there are players at United who, who might vie for his position and it's not necessarily inked in that he will start and that there will be debate about him as though he's a normal player not an icon and not a brand 
I thought he was a, a legend. I, I didn't realise that he was that bad at Juventus either, but thanks for highlighting that for me. I didn't know. I, I've asked people on social media their thoughts on the best and worst of returning players at your clubs. There's been some great uh, responses. Um, easy this one, says my mate Mark. Gary McSheffrey returning to Coventry City. Over 200 appearances for the Sky Blues, including a brace in the final game at Highfield Road. We beat Derby 6-2. Legendary status ensued. Cough fans still sing his name to this day. Uh, Louis says Bobby Zamora at Brighton. Eddie Howe says Chris did okay at Bournemouth. He also brought back Steve Fletcher, whose goal kept them in the Football League. Uh, James says Didier Drogba back to Chelsea. Won another title, scored an important goal against Leicester. Ben, I think is an Everton fan, says Wayne Rooney. I think this might be worst. I don't know. Martin Keown, that might be best. I don't know. Keenan Defoe from Andy. Um, Bale, not so much. Clearly a Spurs fan. This is a Liverpool fan, says Robbie Fowler. Craig Bellamy at Cardiff as well, says Lloyd. Sean, Billy Sharp, he's a Sheffield United fan. There's some great ones. Billy Sharp went back twice as well. And obviously, you know, as a kid, and then another spell didn't work. And then this the third time lucky, he got fired him to the Premier League and he's become an absolute legend. I think he might win, actually. Mm. What did you make <laughs> of, this one says God, aka Fowler. What did you make of, of his return? No, that wasn't his successful I don't think if you're God it's quite hard to leave and come back isn't it that's not what God's do. <laughs> <laughs> well you know he might come back one day so you know just wait you know we've been waiting long enough uh, Beardsley and Carroll um, I think that's maybe Beardsley best Carroll worst Newcastle United uh, Mark says Super Bob Taylor scored a post-war record 37 goals getting West Brom promoted left for Bolton in 98 returned at the end of the 2000 season five goals in eight games to keep the Albion up too late as he scored the opener in our 2-0 win, two nil win versus Palace that promoted us to the Prem Luther Blissett the Luther Blissett has actually responded to this and he's just said, anyone, question mark, no, no Watford fans saying the great Luther Blissett. I mean, that is disgraceful, frankly. Um, John says, Bosnich back at United. I actually had to look that up. I've totally forgot that he played for Manchester United twice. Brian Dean and Lee Chapman at Leeds. Frank Reichardt at Ajax. This one says, the one and only Scott Murray leaving Bristol City to come back. Legend Peter Lorimer. There's so many Zidane for Real Madrid as the manager, but the worst is probably David nah. Luiz at Chelsea, says Shah. What do you mean, no? Nah? I mean, I can't. Zidane Managers going back to Real count. Madrid. Well, and also, just like, fuck, give me the players he had at Real Madrid. It'd be absolutely grand. <laughs> Paul Scholes. This says Ginge for West Ham. So I assume that means uh, James Collins. I could go on and on. There's been loads of them. But, some great um, shouts there. Great, great some fantastic shouts. shouts there. So many that I didn't even think of, of one of my own, to be perfectly so honest. So maybe they are a success sometimes. <laughs> We're always starting yeah, to say Never go well, back. Never go back. <laughs> no, not according to the listeners here. So, <laughs> good luck, Cristiano. <laughs> Virtually every player that you speak to, there's a club that they would have loved to go back to at the end of their career for the swan song. So, Gregor, who, which club would it have been? <laughs> it's Forest. We know it's. We know he loves Forest. Yeah, but should there be realistic ones though? No, but imagine you talked recently about how you wanted to change your game from left back to left sided centre back. Imagine if Forrest had like, you know, played a back three, wanted a left-sided centre-back for just one season with experience. They wanted you to be the Des Walker and they'd gone, come on, son, come home. 
That would have been, been nice. lovely. That would have been lovely, Tom. Yeah, he's doing the thing <laughs> when he stares out the window again, wishfully. Oh yeah, let's move We've on. We've ruined his day again. We've ruined his day once again. Sorry, Gregor. Uh, thank you all for being with me for the past hour or so. Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson, and Alison Rudd, and to all of you for listening at home. Make sure you check out Martin Ziegler's piece on the biennial World Cup in the Times right now. Make sure you're subscribed as well. Go online, search the Times.co.uk forward slash the game. If you sign up right now, you'll get yourself one month three we will see you on Monday thanks for listening helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.